Ron Baker. Thank you. My, my boss, Robert, insists that I use the handheld or that we use the handheld, and I do everything my boss says. So uh, <laughs> I have more to say about these gentlemen over here. They changed my life. Uh, I call Robert a dream maker. So uh, thanks, Ed. I have kind of a unique position within Verisage, and, and maybe Ed too, because I get to work across all professional sectors. Even though I am a recovering CPA, and I spend time in the CPA world, so I'm immersed in that, but I also spend time in John, John's world, Matthew Burgess's world, the legal world. I do a lot of work with lawyers. I do, I've done a lot of work, thanks to John, in uh, all over Australia with lawyers. I also have the great pleasure of working with my colleague, Tim Williams, who's taught me everything I know about marketing and advertising agencies and strategy and positioning. His world's a blast because, I mean, they actually do stuff of value, um, you know, create brands and stuff and really build businesses. Uh, and I get to work with actuaries and I get to work with IT consultants through Ed and Sage and other consultants. And what I notice about whatever sector you're in, it doesn't really matter. If you're using the business model of we sell time, you have all the same issues. Now, yeah, you have different language, each profession uses diff different acronyms, but I notice there's a lot more commonalities than there are differences. Because this business model is very, very restrictive, right? It puts the ceiling over your head. And one of the things, since we formed Verisage, and it was formed by me and Dan Morris and my ex-partner, uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way, Justin Barnett, who couldn't be here, he's on the Mexican cruise because his uh, wife is teaching, so he, he wasn't able to make it today, but he, the three of us formed Verisage, and I didn't want to start a consulting firm. I wanted to start a think tank, and it was for very selfish reasons. I just wanted to hang out and work with really smart people and just be a group that was dedicated to ideas and ideals because I truly do believe that ideas have consequences and ideas can change lives. And that's why I'm a big believer in kind of the open system. I don't hoard our intellectual capital. We give it away. We're, we have the Lennox operating model. And people ask me all the time, why do you give all your intellectual capital away? I mean, the most Verisage will try and ever sell you is a book. And even, I, I hate to admit this, but even the cost of this conference is based on cost cost pricing. It's not even cost plus pricing. It's cost pricing. We're not, we don't do this to make a profit. I give away my intellectual capital because that forces me to replenish it. And it forces me to stay at the cutting edge and never be complacent. And when we started Verisage, the goal was to tip <clears throat> what we call tipping the professions. And what I mean by that is, if you're all familiar with this diffusion curve, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about it in, in Tipping Point, but it actually goes back to a much older book by a guy named E. Everett Rogers, I believe. And it basically says, in any market or in any population, if you introduce a new product or a new idea, you're going to have innovators, to the first two and a half percent, they're going to do it just because they want whatever's new, right? These are the people that stand online at the Apple store to get whatever the new product is, the Apple Watch 3 or whatever, right? It's like Woodstock for nerds. And then once you get through that two and a half percent, you move over to the early adopters. And they like to be first to have things too. They're the ones that buy the hard book, 
you know, cover books and all of that. And then, of course, that puts you into the early majority. But in order to cross that chasm, you can see you need about 16 or 17 percent of a population to be able to start sliding into that early majority. And of course, once you get into the early majority, the system starts to tip. And of course, at the other far end of the extreme, you have the laggards, right? These are the people that you know, would still buy a rotary phone if they could, right? They'll never change. And the interesting thing about this curve is we're all on it at different points for different things, right? You may be a laggard in technology, but you may be a cutting edge innovator with ideas, right? Or vice versa. And we're asked all the time at Verisage, if your theories, if your ideas are so good, and by the way, they're not our theories and ideas, every pricing consultant in the world owes their entire existence to the economics profession, period. All, everything we've done is derivative of economists that lived back in the 1870s, and, and even going back before. We could go back to Aristotle, Socrates, because they talked about the just price and all of that. But all of our work is derivative. So yeah, we give it cute names like revenue management and dynamic demand pricing and, and all this stuff, but that's all crap. It's all economics. It's all rooted in solid economic theory that's been around for hundreds of years. And people say to us, well, if these ideas are so good, why haven't more firms done it? Well, good ideas can take an awful long time to diffuse into a population, and bad ideas have an incredibly long shelf life, right? Bad ideas can hang around for a long time. I give you North Korea, Cuba, right? Uh, so if you look at where we are, we've nailed the innovators. We're done with that. That group's... You're, Partly, you're in this room, but we've got at least 2.5% of firms out there doing things the way that, that we think they should be done. Full value pricing, no timesheets, value guarantees on all their work. I think we're somewhere in the early adopters. Is it 2%, 5%? It's really hard to tell. Some professions are, are further ahead than others. And then, of course, if you start breaking it down by country, it gets even more convoluted because in some countries, like I think Australia and the legal world, might be on a per capita basis farther ahead than the states or, say, the UK, right? But no matter where it is, we're solidly in the early adopter category. So we haven't hit a tipping point yet. Now, I've got bets with people that we're not going to hit a tipping point in my lifetime. And that's why when we go and talk to audiences, I don't expect to get 100% conversion. All I need is 10% of them, 17% of them, right? To, to be able to, to bring them in, educate them, and hopefully have them change their mind. Because a lot of this is about unlearning, right? We've all been taught the same thing. I worked, went to work for a big eight, and I was taught I sold time. And I, did, I didn't challenge that. Who was I was a punk kid at 21. What did I know? Of course I sold time. Right? They made me fill out a timesheet. I didn't start to challenge it, and it, I didn't change my mind until my late 20s, and I figured out, you know, this is a lousy customer experience. We got, or I got into value pricing because of the customer experience. I didn't do it because of the marketing theory. I didn't do it because of the economic theory. I didn't do it to add profit to our firm. I did it because I thought billing by the hour was a really shitty customer experience. 
and I wanted to be the Disney of CPA firms. I wanted to be the Lexus. I wanted to be the Nordstrom or the, you know, the Neiman Marcus. I wanted a great customer experience because great customer experience can charge higher prices and have more loyal customers and, and have less of them as well. And that's why I did it. So I think we're somewhere in that early adopter phase. And if you're not in there, that means 84% of the firms out there are basically copying one another, right? They're all using the same business model. And if you do that, you'll always be left behind. So just to back this up, um, here are some things, and this is just, and this is a very impartial or a very uh, non-exhaustive list. There's a lot of names I'm leaving out, I'm sure. I just, these are the ones that came up to me on the airplane. But here are some, in addition to the Verisage fellows, here are some people with major, major platforms that are having a major influence on their various sphere of influence, whatever the profession that they work in. Mark Wickersham is doing amazing work in the UK with literally probably thousands of accountants around the world getting them to make this transition. That's huge. I mean, th these things didn't exist when Justin and I started doing this in 1989 in our firm. When we started doing this thing called value pricing in 89, there were no books. There, were nobody, there was nobody on the circuit talking about this. There was no place to go for guidance. There, if, you, if, you, if you could have searched Amazon back then or go into a bookstore, there were no books on pricing. There was Pro Professional Pricing Society in 89. They were a few years old, but I didn't know about them. I knew nothing. And we just did it all by trial and error. So Mark Wickersham, Joe Woodard is another major influence in the accounting profession. He does a, a conference every year called Scaling New Heights. Kirk Bowman has spoken at it. Uh, Mark has, speaks at it. Uh, I, I've spoken at it. Uh, Blair Enns in, in uh, Tim Williams' world, works with design firms. He is out there preaching the message. He just wrote a book. I'm currently reading a new book. Uh, Jonathan Stark is another IT programmer. He's got a podcast. I think it's called Ditching Hourly. I listen to it regularly. One thing I can tell you, folks, no matter what sector you're in, whether you're an attorney, an accountant, an IT, whatever, you can learn from other sectors because pricing is about economics, and economics is about human behavior. It's just about human behavior. There's nobody, uh, there's nobody here but us people. Um, and then, of course, we got Steve Major and Melanie Powers, again, in Australia, working with bookkeepers and accountants to help them make this transition. You have Dominique Molina, who was in Boston uh, a couple years ago at our Verisage meeting, who's got a, uh, a tax group of, of tax preparers and CPAs and EAs and things like that, and she's preaching this message. Uh, Jason Blummer, Jody Paydar, Rob Nixon in Australia, all of these are major advocates of this change. You couldn't have said this 20 years ago. I couldn't have said this in 1994 when I started teaching this. I couldn't have said this even, maybe even up to 2000. We just didn't have this type of presence in the marketplace. Uh, Eric Press in the legal space, uh, he was the former editor of American Lawyer. He, I converted him when I spoke to his group in New York uh, earlier this year, and he was absolutely blown away by a two-hour presentation, basically, that he said completely flipped his entire worldview upside down. We at Verisage love to change minds, love to change people's minds, because our minds are changed, and, and there's nothing better than a reformed zealot, right, or, or a reformed alcoholic, right? They're, they're the ones that are going to want to get you, you know, 
uh, off the wagon. Uh, and then when you start looking at some of the companies that are now officially putting their imprimatur on this movement, Sage has since I've known Ed in 2003, and I think they've done it largely because Ed just kind of forced them to do it. They didn't really have a choice. Uh, but now I can say Intuit is, is putting major resources behind this, and Zero and the AICPA and various state societies, Bill Sheridan, Tom Hood from the Maryland Association, continuously preach the value pricing message in their blogs and articles and come to conferences and write about it. CCH, PPS, Carbon Practice Admission, 4As, which is the Advertising Association, IPA, the Advertising Association in the UK, which was headed a couple, couple years ago by Rory Sutherland, who believes that if advertising agencies don't become behavioral economists, they're going to become irrelevant. If you haven't listened to a Rory Sutherland TED Talk, please do. He's got like five of them, right, Ed? Uh, they're amazing. He's a super funny guy, but unbelievably brilliant. He'll just He's like a fire hose of ideas, and we had him on the show uh, in, in our first year, and I don't think Ed, Ed and I got a, a word in edgewise. I mean, it was like, Ed, you shut him up. I'm Skyping him. It's like, you cut in, cut in. It's like, no, I'm not going to cut in on him. I'm wait for him to take a breath. Well, he doesn't take a breath. He just keeps going. Um, ICB, Louis, uh, Louis was, one thing he didn't mention was Louis was the former president of the IPBC, which is the Institute of Professional Bookkeepers in Canada, and we started a black swan program up there, and I've been mentoring five uh, bookkeepers for six months, one-on-one -on -one, uh, work, group calls, and I'm happy to report of these 40 bookkeepers that we've put through this pretty intensive program We've, every one of them to a, to a woman, because they're all women, have changed their business model. No more timesheets, and some of them have 12 employees, and that's a pretty big bookkeeping firm. Uh, no no timesheets, no billable hours. They've changed their business model. In fact, two of them tattooed the black swan on their inner wrist. Now, I don't know about you, but when somebody tattoos your firm logo on their body, uh, that's a pretty loyal customer, right? You've seen Harley-Davidson tattoos, haven't you? Have you ever seen a BMW tattoo or a CPA tattoo? Actually, there is a guy with a CPA tattoo. Uh, but for me, that was the ultimate, to have these ladies tattoo their arm. Because, and I asked them, why would you do that? And they said, because it changed, this program changed our lives. So uh, you couldn't have said this. 15 years ago. This is massive. This movement is actually massive, but we're still in that early adopter phase. And just on why it hasn't diffused faster, I just want to tell one quick story. These two guys from Perth, doctors in Perth, Dr. Barry Marshall and Dr. Robin Warren had a theory back in 1982. They didn't think ulcers were caused by stress. They thought that that was a completely BS diagnosis because if you dig in, in, into anybody's life dig in, uh, deep enough, what will you find? <laughs> Stress, right? So can you blame, you can blame, you can blame it for everything, right? It's like blaming gravity for airplane crashes. It's kind of a crappy theory, <laughs> right? Because we defy gravity every day because planes land safely every day. So these guys said, no, no. Ulcers are not caused by stress, they're caused by bacteria in the stomach, and they developed an antibiotic cocktail 
that they were administering in this Perth hospital to patients, and these patients were being cured of their ulcer. So they started to write papers for peer-reviewed journals and wanted to speak at conference. Now, this is the medical profession, folks, and these guys are not wackos. <laughs> they're not, you know, weird outliers. They're, they're traditional researching doctors in a teaching hospital. The medical profession around the world refuted these two guys, and they did it between 1982 and 1996. It took these guys 15 years to get a scientific and evidence-based profession to realize that their theory was right. And one of the things they kept asking doctors, how much data you need to make a decision? Because doctors would just dismiss them. They'd say, well, you're in Perth, you're in the outbook, what, you know, what are you administering these things to, kangaroos? I mean, this isn't scientific, you know. And, and they were just completely dismissive of these guys. Well, it turns out these guys were right. They won a Nobel Prize in medicine in 2005. And if you've known anybody with an ulcer that's been cured, you have these two gentlemen to thank. Good ideas can take a long time to diffuse. Even though there's empirical evidence for them, bad ideas can hang around for, for decades or even centuries. So this is a real uphill battle. And for you early adopters and innovators in this room, you kind of already know this because if you talk to colleagues and you tell them what you're doing, you're going to get sneered at, you're going to get laughed at. I've got, you know, I've got the arrows in the back to prove it. That you, you, but you just got to, you just got to keep going forward. You know, Verisage is often called a religious, a religion, or a cult. I love that because it's it's the antithesis of what we are. Verisage isn't based on based on empirical evidence. We're the mayor of Realville. <laughs> we actually go into firms and see what works. And this stuff works. And the people in this room are testament to it because a lot of the fellows in this room are practicing. They're, they're living this stuff and breathing it every single day. Ed and I, we just talk about it. But you guys are doing it. And, and that's the evidence. And, it, and we know it works. And we know it's scalable. So. How long is it going to take? I have no idea. My personal opinion is we need to get into the big law firms, the big accounting firms, the big ad, ad agencies in order to get this thing to really tip. It's great getting smaller firms and all of that, and I'm all for it, and I'll spend as much of my time doing that. But if I can get a big four accounting firm to tip, this thing will, this thing, the train will have left the station, and you have two options at that point. You can be on it or you can be under it. So this is what I want my tombstone to read. And this is why I need your help. Thank you very much. The other hand held here. What I, what I want to do is I want to uh, take, take questions from you guys for Ron on this presentation. We've got about uh, nine minutes or so before the break. So thoughts or questions or, or comments that you have about what you're seeing in the marketplace. So any fellows, anything like that, want, want stuff to share? Got to have somebody. This is not a shy group. Yeah, this is not a shy group. <laughs> yeah, Chris, I can always count on you. 
Uh-oh. <laughs> at least it's not Greg. What a guy. What a guy. <laughs> well, about that. well, I'm sure a lot of people in this room who are who are just watching some of the change happen in the professions are noticing the like the commoditiz- commoditiz- commodification of the professions, and that's concerning. And a lot of the, um, you know, there's a statement that all that glitters is not gold, so there's a lot of false gold out there. Um, we're about value pricing, and we're seeing a lot of forms of fixed pricing that is not value pricing, mm-hmm. and that's cheapening the profession. What's also happening is the consumers are becoming confused because they don't know the difference. They just know they're getting a fixed price. So while we're in the early adoption phase, we're also fighting you know, the, the glittery fake gold stuff that's also confusing consumers through this change. And that's why the education of all this is really important and the basis on which we do this is important because the other form of fixed pricing is absolutely inferior. It's, it's even worse than the billable hour from the standpoint of its impact in the profession. Just wanted to... Okay, uh, Ron, uh, uh, no, that, address that for a second. Yeah, Talk about the difference. The, it, it's a great point. It, as, as you change anything, it, all transformations are linguistic. We've got to change the language. And one of the things that I, I, it is confusing is people do use fixed pricing and value pricing as, as, as if it means the same, and it doesn't. However, we don't want you to use the term value pricing with your customers. Please don't use that term because value means different things to different people. Why can't we just say price? Or if you're really clever, do what Moore's has done, which I absolutely love. They branded their pricing approach by calling it Moore's Agreed Pricing. Call it a fixed price. Anything that conveys certainty is much better. Don't use the term value pricing. We only do it because we're staying true to the economics profession. And value in the economics profession has a very, very, very specific and technical meaning, which is the maximum amount a consumer will pay for an item. Now, that is a very useful thing to think about. And folks, the other thing, and I brought this up at the Art of Value conference, please, please, we need to get over this idea that value is a number. It's not. It's a feeling. Value is a feeling. If you have an Apple product in front of you, you paid a fortune for it in terms of its price. Why would you buy it? Because it makes you feel good or it's beautifully designed or I think it's easier or whatever it might be. It's a feeling. It's not a number. You have to infer it from the customer by having a value conversation. So use the term fixed price. One of our uh, fellows called it an open price, which I thought was interesting. I've seen transparent price. These words may have different baggage in different industries, but anything that implies certainty to the customer is going to be perceived as higher value. And, And I've just come to believe, why don't we just call it a price? What happened to the word price? Price has no baggage. Right? It's a completely neutral term. No negative or positive connotations. It's just we're used to asking what's the price. So, but that, that, you're, you're right, Chris. And there are a lot of consultants in the market that say, oh, yeah, but we're all for value pricing, but you got to keep your timesheets. Well, I'm absolutely convinced, again, by empirical evidence, that if you keep timesheets in a firm that tries to implement p- value pricing, you won't be as successful. Because, and I'll tell you why we think that. Because every single firm that's made this conversion, if you go back in and ask them three, five years later, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do different? They, they say, to a firm, we would have got rid of timesheets first. Because you've got to throw away the crutch. 
If you throw away the crutch, then you can't price based on time anymore. You've got to look to value. And I know that's a hard thing to do. It's, it's, I'm not, we're not saying any of this is easy. It's not. It's, it's especially not easy in a big firm. If it was, the big four would have already been there. AmLaw 100 would have already been there. But it's doable. But you've got to be willing to, to make the commitment and, and, and pay, basically pay the price to do this. You know, a competitive advantage is never free. And, and I can't think of anything that, that, that is worth doing that's easy, right? Um, and, and people say, well, you guys are really zealots. You're, you, know, you advocate getting rid of the timesheet. Ed called it the most immoral thing in the accounting profession was to keep a timesheet. It, it's holding, and, and, and it's a great point. And people say, well, why are you such a zealot? You're scaring people off. Well, <laughs> because when I go into the bookstore and I go into the history section, I never see a book that says great moderates in history. You know, there, there's a joke about the UK, uh, you know, rioters in the street, the, you know, the moderate rioters, and, and they chant, you know, what do we want? Incremental change. When do we want it? In due course. Uh, you know, you just, you just never see that. Yeah. And by the way, as I'm going to take this question, one of the exercises for those of you, if you have firms that Ron and I did specifically on that is we, we just asked this simple question uh, inside your firm. What, what, what would you do in your organization if the billable hour were somehow declared illegal? Like, what would you do? So take, take through that exercise of if it were illegal, what would you do the next day? So. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Mail fraud. Yeah. As I listened to your presentation this morning, I felt like what I was hearing is that value pricing is a revolution, or like you said, a, a cult or religion that's going to take over the world. Um, and you can either get on the train or you can get run over. Uh, is, isn't it a choice? Oh, of course. Everything's a choice, but everything's also a trade-off. Uh, value pricing is a revolution in the rest of the business world, thanks largely to the Professional Pricing Society, which was formed in 1984. They're in Atlanta, Georgia. Go to pricingsociety.com. You can learn more about them. Ed and I are privileged to be on their faculty. So m most of the time you're teaching, you know, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 type organizations. I mean, we had Boeing in the room, uh, you know, Big Pharma, all, all sorts of these really, but they're all pricers. I, I said this at Art of Value, but pricing is a profession. There's certified professional pricers out there. It is a, it is a profession. You can get a PhD in pricing. Uh, it's moved into the C-suite in large organizations. All we're trying to do is bring it, those practices into the professional world, which, which are obviously way behind the curve on this. And, but yes, it, it is definitely a choice. And you don't have to do it. I, I, there'll, be a, there'll be some laggards at the end of that curve that won't make this transition. Just, just like you can find people that never went to the billable hour. There's a firm in, in my part of the world that never kept a timesheet, never went to the billable hour when the rest of the profession did in the, in the 60s. They never did it. They've been doing fixed prices the entire time because they were on that laggard curve. They never, they never followed their, their peers. So it's really interesting. But yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a choice. And look, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that value pricing is a panacea. It's not. It's not a panacea. It's not, it, it, right now it's a competitive advantage because so few firms are doing it. But once all firms do it, once we hit that tipping point, you're not going to be able to use pricing as a competitive advantage. You're going to actually have to innovate. 
and and find ways to, to add more value. We we had uh, the the per, the pricer from BlackBerry in one of our sessions at Professional Pricing Society he came up to Ed and I at the very first break. This is when you know. Uh, Greg was still using the BlackBerry, but uh, the rest of the world had kind of left it in the dust, and they just you know, they were behind on the innovation curve. Good pricing couldn't have helped BlackBerry. Better pricing couldn't have helped BlackBerry at all. The guy asked us, Ed, Ron, what should I do? And we said, well, you should probably think about getting a new job. <laughs> I mean, uh, it was tough love, but pricing can't save a, a non-innovative company or, or, or a company that's just behind on, on adding value. Uh, just a historical note, uh, Ron, I guess it was Ron, you said, uh, Closer. Uh, sorry, you said that uh, what would you do if, if you were, you know, if timesheets were made illegal? And it's kind of interesting uh, to look back that uh, timesheets in the legal profession are not that old, as we know, and in fact, it was a legal decision in 1975 in Virginia, in Goldfarb versus Virginia State Bar, that effectively outlawed the way a lot of the legal services were being priced in Virginia at the time and said to the lawyers, you are not allowed to set prices through the Bar Association. That's antitrust violation. You're Collusion. not special. Yeah. And so uh, what happened was they, they said, well, we've got to do something. And that something ended up being more reliance on timesheets. So A, it's not that old. B, it does happen that your pricing mechanism gets you know, ruled illegal and you have to do something. So we should be ready when that happens. It may not be a legal decision. It might just be uh, you know, some collective realization that, hey, why are we doing this to ourselves with these timesheets anymore? What are we going to do to replace it? And I'll talk about that tomorrow. OK, right. great. Uh, just one thing on the historical note, because I, I, I was fascinated about where, where did the idea for the timesheet and the billable hour come from? And of course, we, you know, we've traced it back to Karl Marx, the labor theory of value. But who was the first of, of say, the professions to implement it? And all the conventional literature is that it started in the 50s with the ABA who issued surveys that said, oh, lawyers that track their time make more money in net income than lawyers that don't track their time making gross income. Well, lawyers read that and said, wow, I'll start tracking my time and billing for time. Uh, but actually, it goes back further than that. There's a guy named Reginald Heber Smith, who in 1919 implemented the first timesheet and the billable hour. And it was a legal aid practice, I believe. And he wrote a series of articles about it in 1937, before the war, that were so popular, the ABA bound up these four articles into a little book. This book went through like 11 editions. I bought one of them on eBay. For, it cost me like $400. It's like a little 60-page book. And the first thing Reginald says in that book is, the practice of law is a race against time. Well, look, if any profession thinks it's racing against time, I got news for us. We're going to lose because we only have so much time on this mortal coil, right? Time is not value, it's not even a cost. It's a constraint. It's just a constraint. Bill Gates is subject to the same constraints of time as we are, give or take, but his business model isn't we sell time, so his bank account looks a little bit different, right? Um, so, yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm fascinated by the history of all these ideas, because you know, ideas don't just drop out of the sky. <laughs> they come from minds. Where did this, if you can sometimes, if you can trace back an idea to its antecedents and find out what was going on when it happened, that makes it easier to falsify it or at least replace it with something superior. All right. All right. One more question and then we're going to take a break. Are we seeing any pricing innovation from the large consulting firms like Accenture, Boston Consulting Group, uh, McKinsey? Just curious. Massive. 
Accenture, I believe, has something like 45 or 60 or 55 last percentage I saw was somewhere in there of their revenue under actual value pricing agreements where they're actually taking a percentage of like cost saved or things like that. They have very innovative pricing. Bain doesn't use the billable hour timesheets. McKinsey doesn't use the billable hour timesheets. Those guys, they get it. Those firms absolutely get it. It's, it's the smaller firms in the consulting world that are just mired in the billable hour. Uh, wow, there's probably a ton of it in various books. You can read, there's a, there's a, there's a pricing team at McKinsey uh, and they've written about this. Um, this great Craig Sawada was one of the guy's names. I, there, there's more. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you that, about that offline. But let me just tell you one more thing. When I first entered Tim Williams' world, the advertising world, and, and I remember it like it was yesterday because I was with Paul Kennedy and Paul O'Byrne in New York, and somebody from the 4As had contacted me. Uh, no, it was actually an advertising agency who contacted me. They were in L.A., and they, they read an article I wrote for CPAs because the CFO of this agency was a CPA. And he said, look, a lot of things that you write about, about CPAs are true in my world. So he said, I'd like to send you a bunch of literature and, and make an introduction to, to Tom Finneran. That's how I got to know Tom. And he said, uh, so he sends me all this stuff. And, and I brought it with me to New York. And when back in the room, I'm sitting there reading it, and it was all of this stuff about what agencies had to fill out to search consultants, compensation consultants, they call them, and it was all their overhead. You know, what do we pay for rent? What do we pay for salaries? What do we pay for travel and entertainment? And I'm looking at this stuff, and I'm realizing the comp consultants are looking at this, they're comparing it to national data banks, and then they're saying, well, you know, you pay too much rent here in New York, so we're gonna cut that. They're cutting their hourly rate, they're cutting their profit margin. And I'm like, advertising agencies are regulated utilities. They can only earn a certain ROI on the cost of capital. Are they regulated utilities? No, this is absurd. And, and I just, I couldn't believe this, that they were more, walk into McKinsey, even walk into a big four and ask them, hey, before you do my job, I want you to fill out, I want to analyze your overhead. Go into Porsche and say, I'd like to know how much that car costs to make. See what, see what they'd say to you. They'd, they'd laugh you out of the building. But advertising agencies were forced to do this and probably still, still are to, to, to some extent. Tim's changing that. Uh, but that, that just blew my mind. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely market pressure going on here. But, folks, this change is up to you. It's not up to your clients. It's not up to the customer side. Business model innovation comes from the supply side. That's us. That's why Ed and I and the Professional Pricing Society, we only work with sellers. We normally don't work with buyers. We work on the sales side because it's the sellers that have to innovate the business model. The last thing I want to happen is for the customers to come at you and dictate how you price. It's not their business. They can't tell you how to price. Uh, United Airlines, when they, when they switched over to revenue management, or indeed any airline who switched over to revenue management in the 1979 or so, uh, they didn't send out letters to their passengers saying, do you mind if we use revenue management? and dynamically change ticket prices 11 million times a day? No, they just did it. <laughs> they didn't ask for permission. We should neither. We should, we should put something innovative that's valuable on the table and make the customer want to pay for it because it provides them with certainty and a better experience and more value. All right, great. Well, we're going to take our first break here. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. All right. <clears throat>
And we're going to be back at 9, I'm sorry, 10-10. 10-10. 10-10.